Hey friends, Alan Duty here, preaching pastor at New Life. We're delighted to bring you this sermon from our Sunday gathering. For more information or to support our ministry, visit us online at newlifecs.net. Thank you, and enjoy the following message. use an iPad and it goes all the way to page 25. It's fine. Well, howdy, New Life. Good to be with you. Good to see you. Thankful on this Father's Day to, to be with the Gather Church. Amen. So good to be together in person. We pick back up in our story, in our series, Joshua 13, Courageous Faith. This big story that the Israelites are in and we're caught up in. And just like a puzzle maker, we step back and we see the pieces beginning to come into place. There's a lot on the board. It's beginning to fill in and we're beginning to see this wonderful picture, this wonderful work of art. And the story continues today. So we open chapter 13 to this key critical transition in the book of Joshua. It's this realization of the Genesis promise. And really what is happening in the first five books of the Bible, especially in the book of Joshua though. And so this promise that began with Adam and Eve, this promise of salvation even through the curse and continues through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that God would make a people, he would make a land, and he would bless them, has reached a new point of fulfillment here in Joshua 13. I know it looks like a bunch of of names and a bunch of lands and a bunch of those things again, but something significant's happening, and I'm hoping that I can help us see that. So Israel is finally being established. Think about their history. They're finally being established by coming into the land after difficulty, trial, suffering, God is bringing them in and giving them the inheritance that he promised. And so the text breaks down like this, verses one through seven, Miss Ann just read, the Lord is essentially recommissioning Joshua. He's reminding him of the land that still needed to be allotted, distributed to the people. Then he gives specifics on those lands, right? He names them. And then in verses 8 through 33, we have this review in a sense of what Moses had already done. And so ultimately, all of this points to the wonderful faithfulness of God to do exactly what he said he was going to do to accomplish for his people what he had promised to accomplish. Namely, by using imperfect leaders and imperfect people to fulfill those promises. And so I want to focus our time this morning by drilling down and looking at these three aspects because I think that they come out as we read the text. So the three are imperfect leaders, imperfect people, and the faithfulness of God. And so we pick up in verse 1 with Joshua. And the narrator says that Joshua was old and advanced in years 
And then the Lord reminds Joshua that he's old and advanced in years, as if you need a reminder, right? Amen. And though it seems like a detail, though it seems like a detail that that communicates the passage of time, don't miss what's happening here, the significance. It's as if the Lord is saying to Joshua, even though you are old and advanced in years, there's still work to be done. How many of us use age as an excuse to excuse us from the things that God has called us to? Are you old and advanced in years? Are you young and lacking in years? Age doesn't disqualify you from knowing God and obeying him. It shouldn't prevent us from continuing to run the race that God has set out before us. And it shouldn't make us believe that there's a point in time where we should just check out. The American word for that is retirement and refuse to continue serving the Lord. So this highlights something important that I want to spend some time on. Though age is a limitation for Joshua, that didn't prevent him from serving God and serving Israel. More than that, it highlights God's willingness and ability to compensate for Joshua's weaknesses, limitations, and shortcomings. Right, All of which, some of those things can be controlled and some of those things cannot be controlled. And so think for a moment. Joshua was advancing in years. He, in serving God's people for 40 years, think about that, 40 years. There's many in the room that aren't even 40. So Joshua has been serving one people longer than you've been alive, maybe. He had endured much hardship, much suffering, much difficulty. He made poor decisions. Remember back to chapter 3 in Jericho where Joshua sends spies into the land? Was it necessary for Joshua to send spies into the land? Was it wise? Was it a good use of resources? Was it really moving the needle in terms of entering the promised land? God had promised the land. So why send spies into the land? Additionally, in chapter 7, the whole situation at Ai, Israel had broken faith with God, and Joshua didn't ask God about the Ai situation. Joshua acted on his own wisdom, his own understanding, and in so doing, there were consequences for him and for God's people. So just a glimpse of some of the imperfection that we see in Joshua's life. And it reminds us that every single leader has limitations, weaknesses, and shortcomings, some of which they can control, some of which they can't control. As Pastor Chris so helpfully reminded us a couple of weeks ago, every single one of our leaders will fail us. They will disappoint us. They'll make decisions you don't like or that you don't understand. They'll disappoint you in the way that they treat you, by the way that they live their lives. The longer that you know them, 
the more evident their weaknesses will be. Potentially, the more ordinary their gifting will be or seem. They'll respond in anger, in frustration, in fear at times. They'll look and seem lost at other times. They'll sin and they'll struggle in ways that you don't understand. They'll sin against you and against others. Not to mention the limitations that relate to their gifting, their talent, their ability, their time, their treasure, even their age. And they'll fail to be the perfect model that you want and need them to be. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not excusing any sin, any wrongdoing of any leader. But what I want us to remember is that God has put leaders in position, in their position of authority and leadership for a purpose. Despite their many limitations, weaknesses, and shortcomings, we know that every leader is being used by God. And though imperfect, leaders have been placed in their position of authority to reflect the image of God in the way that they lead, love, and care for the people that they serve. And this is especially true with spiritual leaders, right? We know that spiritual leaders, pastors, have been set apart by God. They've been given authority, and therefore they are called to reflect God's authority to exercise dominion. We see that in Genesis by the way that they lead and the way that they rule. As such, spiritual leaders will be held to a greater standard for the way that they lead those they serve. But we all know that there are going to be many opportunities for us to see the sin, weakness, and failure of our leaders because we live our lives so closely in the church. And that's why I think the scripture communicates the gravity of spiritual leaderships in the way that, uh, spiritual leadership in the way that it does. Though leaders are imperfect, they're meant to point us to the great leader. And so on one hand, their limitations, their weaknesses, their shortcomings remind us of our need for a savior. They remind us that we are not unlike them as we view and witness their limitations in that way. And it's a reminder that we're all longing for something more, right? So that's one hand. On the other hand, faithful leadership provides an example as we all seek to grow in Christ-likeness. It provides protection and guidance, provision, spiritually, physically, emotionally, and mentally. And this is exactly what we see in Joshua's life. As we've been studying the book of Joshua, uh, though he had many imperfections, many weaknesses, many failures, he was Moses's loyal aide. He was Moses's successor after serving Israel for four decades. He was one of the greatest military leaders. He led this current campaign that we're reading about, learning about in Joshua for seven years. What a long war, what a long battle. But more than that, God had called him. 
He was using him. And as a result, Joshua was reflecting the image and glory of God through his life and leadership. You see, it's through the imperfect that the perfect truly shines brightly. Remember the phrase old and advanced in years? It's the same phrase used in reference to Abraham, to Sarah, and King David. Isn't it beautiful, this wonderful connection between the Genesis promises to redeem a people and provide a place for them and what is said about Joshua here? That's why I think that phrase is significant, old and advanced in years. You see, God was fighting for Israel and he was using Joshua, the faithful, humble leader, to lead Israel. Friends, our perfect God delights to use imperfect leaders to fulfill his promises. It's one of the greatest evidences of his mercy and grace. Well, then we find the specifics in verses two through seven, where Joshua was given the land to a lot. Notice that Joshua is not given every single detail. Just think about it. Between the instruction, the land that he's supposed to allot, and the tribes settling in the land, the Lord did not prescribe every single detail. Who's responsible for filling in that space? Between the instruction and between the end result. To be sure, as we're going to see in the coming chapters, God provided instruction. However, what about the tribes who were upset about the allotment? What about those who didn't get what they wanted? What about those who had an opinion about what they got? What if things didn't turn out the way they wanted to? What if they didn't get the allotment that they wanted? My friends, Joshua was being led by God. And God equipped him and gave him room to lead. Because by definition, that's what leaders do. Leaders go before. They set out in front, not because they're better people, not because they're more valuable than any other person, but because God promises, has determined to use them as the means by which he will fulfill his promises. And so sometimes, church, we get upset because our leaders are leading. It sounds ridiculous, and I think it is ridiculous. Because our leaders are going out in front, they're going out before us, on the front lines of the battle, doing what God has called them to, to the best of their ability, to get their people to the end result of where they believe God is calling them. And sometimes all we can do is see that the method, the road that they're taking to get to the end result is wrong or not what we would have wanted or not what we would have chosen. My friends, leaders have been called to lead. And that means they'll have to make decisions in the space between God's instruction and the end final result. This brings us to the next section where we are reintroduced to Moses. 
We remember that uh, not only did Moses precede Joshua as Israel's leader, but he was Joshua's mentor. And in light of Titus too, we see this wonderful example of the old pouring into the younger. Joshua learned how to be a faithful leader through Moses. What a wonderful picture we have there. But for a quick review, Moses enters God's story in Exodus, the second book of the Bible. And here are a couple things we learned about uh, Moses. We learned that he was born in the midst of adversity. He was left by the river by his mother to hopefully save his life. He was found and adopted by none other than Pharaoh's daughter, the man who was trying to kill him. Though we, didn't, we don't know much about his childhood, we learn that as a young man, he witnesses this altercation between a Hebrew man and an Egyptian man. He intervenes and he kills the Egyptian man, and then he flees. He encounters God in a burning bush. Imagine that. And God, through that encounter, calls him to lead his people. And what does Moses do? He gives every excuse for why he's not the guy, it's not the time, God must be wrong. Yet, God saw fit to use Moses despite his many imperfections. Moses is the man who repeatedly approached Pharaoh, asking that Pharaoh let his people go. He led a grumbling and complaining people for 40 years. To our knowledge, he didn't kill any of them. What evidence of God's grace? God communicated and passed down his good and perfect law through Moses. And then Moses gave us the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, which is the foundational historical books of the Old Testament. Here is what I love. Verse 8 in our text, chapter 13, the one attribute that's highlighted of Moses, servant servant. What a wonderful picture of true faithful leadership. You see, a servant leader is one who walks with, one who walks alongside his people through the joys, through the pains, helping them to see where they need to go. That's why the New Testament describes pastors and and calls them to be among the people because in part they are bearing the weight of their people's burdens, reminding them of God's presence. A servant leader is one who protects. They're on the lookout for potential threats, physical, spiritual, or otherwise. And this means that in big and in small ways, they're laying their lives down for those they serve. Sometimes for the things and in ways that those they serve don't even know about. A servant leader puts themselves in danger in order to protect their people. What a wonderful glimpse of our Savior's sacrificial love. And a servant leader is one who challenges. They pull you to help you see where you need to go and what God is calling you to do. Notice the the word I used. I said they pull you. The leader who goes out in front and he pulls his people is much different than a leader who is behind pushing his people. 
because the leader's saying, I'm not dictating down. I'm going with, and I want you to see what you need to see. And in so doing, leaders often challenge us. What a wonderful description of a servant leader to walk with us, protect us, and challenge us. What's becoming more clear to see leaders, specifically spiritual leaders, are servant leaders that are but a window through whom we see the greatest and most most faithful leader, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 3 says that Moses points us to Jesus. And Jesus, with his life, showed us what it was to truly become great. He said those who desire to become great must be servant to all. Not surprisingly, though, our world tends to get this backwards, don't they? The one who wants to become great exalts themselves. They get what's theirs. They leave everyone else aside in order to exalt themselves. But this is not the way of our Savior. It's not the way of his leaders, and it's not the way of God's people. And so the first thing I want us to see is that God uses imperfect but faithful leaders to fulfill his promises. In and through their imperfect leadership, we see God's perfect provision and faithfulness to redeem, call, and equip his people. And that's the second observation here. I want you to notice how God uses imperfect people to fulfill his promises. In verses 1, 6, and 7, you'll see how the people had yet to fully conquer the land that was allotted to them. Further, in verse 13, they had not done as God had commanded them. They had not fully driven out the inhabitants. And why did God command them to fully drive out the inhabitants? If you're taking notes, write down Deuteronomy 20. It's a wonderful summary, but in short, God was protecting them because he knew that they were prone to wander that they were prone to worship other gods beside him. And as we mentioned before, Israel had wandered 40 years and they grumbled and they complained and they often directly opposed God and the leaders that God had put over them. The scriptures, not just our text, but the scriptures are full of examples of imperfect, broken, and often sinful people, their actions against God and against God's leaders. Yet, despite all of that, it's this fickle, grumbling, backbiting, and at times faithless people that God chose, is choosing to be a wonderful display of his glory. Isn't that wonderful news? God had determined to highlight the riches of his mercy and grace through his people by redeeming them, blessing them, giving them a place, giving them land so that they would be blessed and would bless other nations. Again, if you're taking notes, Deuteronomy 7 verses 6 through 9 is a wonderful uh, summary of that. Deuteronomy 7 shows how God set his love on his people, not because they were perfect, but rather because he's a good father who loves his children 
despite their imperfections, despite their limitations and their shortcomings, he desired to know them, redeem them, and use them to fulfill his promises. My friends, we are no different. We are no different. I want to remind you of what we learned through our Messy Church series through the books of First and Second Corinthians. Listen to what Paul says about us, about the Corinthians, but also about us, that we are a people who are prone to wander, be divided, fight against our leaders, grumble, complain, engage in sexual immorality, settle our grievances in a worldly way, idolize marriage, abuse our freedoms, worship the created rather than the creator, misuse the ordinances, fail to recognize the wonderful gifting of every member within the body, lack love in our interaction with one another, engage in disorderly worship, and hold tight to our profession, uh, possessions. What an indictment. But God, in spite of that, even in our sin, Romans says, God chose us, called us to faith in Christ. We have been made new and we have been redeemed to be used that we might no longer live for ourselves, but live for him. And this is what I want us to see. Only our holy God could do something as bizarre as this. It is the perfect, imperfect plan. But God so desires to show his glory that he would do it this way. So friends, I hope that the anticipation is building as we see the pieces of the puzzle come together. We're beginning to see the whole picture and what God's doing. But before we move on, we've talked about imperfect leaders. We've talked about imperfect people. Before we move on to the final section, which I believe highlights the faithfulness of God, I want to take a moment and speak to the mess that we've been involved in over the last year and a half. Now, I know everybody's done with COVID and they're done with all that went on and we just want to move past it. But my friends, we're starting to see the effects, aren't we? One of the things that crisis and trial and suffering does is I think it magnifies what's already going on. And so one of the things that's happened is that our leaders, right, nationally and locally, our leaders have made decisions or been forced to make decisions that have taken away our control. And what that's done to us is it's called us to question their authority, their responsibility, and all of that. And so here now, 18 months later, what happens is after someone has been telling you what to do, there's this pent-up frustration and anger and fear and all of those emotions have welled up inside. And all of a sudden, the next time that thing comes up that feels anything like that, that thing where it feels like someone's trying to control you or tell you what to do, what happens? Boom, explosion. I'm not doing that. 
you can't tell me what to do. I'm not going there again. No, thank you. Now, that's natural. That's expected. But my friends, I want us to be aware of what's going on inside of us. Because I think, I don't know about you, but for me, I find myself in day, uh, on days and at times where I feel like I'm in this fog and I can't figure out why I feel the way I do or why I feel like I'm in a fog. There's a lot going on. There's a lot going on. I think it's exposing what's going on in our hearts and I want us to be aware. The scriptures are clear that we will be known by our love, by our love for one another, this family God's brought us into, and by our love for others. There's no conditions or qualifications to that. It's not, when thing, it's not just when things are going well. It's you will be known by your love. And so arguably when things are going terrible and poorly, you have the greatest opportunity to show as we talked about in class this morning, there is this deep connection, this deep bond within the family of Christ that despite what's going on around us, we are rooted and grounded in something so much deeper, so much stronger. That's what's at stake, especially in our disagreements. Remember, our response in these moments especially when we disagree, says more about us than it does about any leader's ability or inability to lead. Hear me, I'm not excusing the lack of leadership, but I'm saying we can only control us. And so our response is telling. I wanna dig down. May we all dig down to root out the bitterness, the frustration, the anger, the angst, all of those emotions that are going on. May we seek to obey Jesus' command to love others and treat others the way that we want to be treated. God has given us his spirit to empower us to do that very thing, to put ourselves in others' shoes, to try to understand their perspective, and then to assume the best, not the worst, to extend much grace and Christian charity. Listen to be slow to speak and quick to listen. There's a lot on the line, church. We're all imperfect, but let us press in. Well, finally, we see what I want to drive home this morning, and that is God is faithful. He's always been using his people to fulfill his promises and so I don't want us to miss this. I think we see that in three ways in this text. Number one, God promises to protect his people, to lead his people, and provide for his people. In verse six, the Lord declares, I myself will drive out the inhabitants. I will drive them out from the people. He reminds Joshua that he's going to protect them. Now, that's physical protection, but don't miss the mention of Balaam in verses 21 and 22. Balaam, the diviner, was a wicked prophet who was summoned by King Balak. And he was summoned to curse Israel. 
ultimately and fortunately, he died by the sword of the Israelites because he was seeking to bring harm to them. God was fighting for Israel physically, but especially spiritually to protect them because he's faithful. Second, God promises that he would lead his people. And we saw that in Joshua. We saw that in Moses. We've just talked at length about that. But finally, God promises that he would provide for his people. And I think this brings us full circle to what this chapter, chapter 13, is all about. There is this wonderful banner. We talked about how pivotal this transition is, right? 13 through 19 especially. There's this wonderful banner that God has kept his promises. That's what's beginning to happen. He promised to provide a place, sense of permanence, and security for his people. And notice how he does it. He brings them into the land. And even though the Jordan separates the west from the east, he brings his people into the land together to unify them because God's concerned about the unity of his people. Not only that, he doesn't just provide physically, he provides spiritually. You'll notice multiple times, two times in this text, he refers to the Israel, I'm sorry, the Levites. The, the Levites were not given land as an inheritance. Rather, They were given permanent positions as priests among Israel in order to help Israel know the way, to help Israel never forget the presence of God. And in so doing, God was providing and caring for their souls. My friends, they had received the land, were receiving the land, their inheritance, because God is faithful. So what is the significance of Joshua 13? Well, first, I think we see the playing field is being leveled. No one's perfect. The New Testament clearly describes how every person has fallen short of God's glory, including weaknesses, limitations, and shortcomings. But lest we think that we're only talking about those minor things, The scripture is clear that every single one of us has missed the mark of God's perfection because of our sin. That which we can't undo, we can't earn, but we are all condemned as sinners. But God, through Jesus Christ, has called us and made us a people when we were not a people. We are called a royal priesthood of believers. And that means we've been rescued from sin and self through faith. We've been united to Christ and united to one another, what we celebrate every single week with the Lord's Supper. We have received the Holy Spirit, which empowers us and is a guarantee of our full and glorious inheritance when Jesus returns. Heaven. We don't use inheritance that often these days. Maybe some of you are aware of that because you've received one in an earthly sense, and that's awesome. But inheritance is the passing down of one's rights, privileges, and possessions. 
So for Israel, they had received the promised land, but this is only a glimpse of what God was doing, what God is doing. If you remember back to Rahab in chapter two, Rahab was a non-Israelite Moabite. God saw fit to send spies to rescue Rahab, the outsider. In so doing, we see this gradual broadening of God's plan of redemption, this expanding of the kingdom, not just in number, but in terms of who was included. Ultimately, we see God moving to rescue and redeem those from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And what is the means by which he will do that? We learn in the New Testament that Jesus inaugurates He begins this new phase of fulfillment through his life, death, and resurrection. He sends the Holy Spirit to what? To unite his people, the church, to bring them together, one mission, one purpose. And it's the church that is the means by which God will reach the world. That's you and me, imperfect yet redeemed. And he promises to be with us and use us until the end. We see all of this continues to bring the picture into focus. The puzzle maker steps back. Most of the pieces are in place. You're beginning to see the picture. You're beginning to see the beauty of the puzzle. He stands in awe, though, not primarily at what he sees, but what he knows. The one who's truly marvelous is the creator, the creator of the puzzle. You see, the creator is the one who knew the plan all along. He was using the puzzle maker, the puzzle pieces, and it was all coming together in this beautiful work of art. I think it gives us a wonderful glimpse of our creator, doesn't it? He's called and equipped imperfect leaders to help oversee and put into place the wonderfully imperfect people within his masterful work of art, the church. Maybe the analogy breaks down at some point. But I think we see the wonderful faithfulness of God to use us, imperfect leaders, imperfect people, to fulfill his promises. It's been his plan all along. So church, we're caught up into something so beautifully massive. I hope and pray that this ignites this fire within us that causes us in love to be the people that God has created us to be, despite our imperfections. If we can enter With that as the given, a lot will be solved. May God help us. Here's the thing. That picture, there are some pieces that are still missing. There are some pieces that haven't been found. And that's for us. That's for us to do. It won't be complete. Till the mission's done. Church, there's so much at stake. So much at stake. 
Let us work and pray together to that end. Pray with me. God, we pray that you would help us. What a vivid reminder of how in need we are, young and old alike, limitations, weaknesses, shortcomings. We ask and pray, God, that you would continue to fill us, change us, make us more like Jesus. We rejoice that you haven't left us alone, but you've given us your spirit to empower us, to be the people you've called us to be in order that we might fulfill all of your wonderful promises. God, that you would use a people like us. We pray, God, for any who are listening this morning who feel like they are outsiders, who feel like they're not part of the story, your story, who do feel the bitterness and anger and frustration of the events that would turn from their sin, understanding that only you can heal and make right the greatest imperfection, the greatest weakness, the greatest shortcoming deep in our hearts. And they will trust you. We thank you, God, for a wonderful church, a place where we can live together in unity. We ask and pray that you would continue working in us to that end. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the sermon audio from New Life Baptist Church in College Station, Texas. For more information or to support our ministry, visit us online at newlifecs.net.